0: Welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast. Today we have an absolute legend of a guest. This is Pete Atkinson. Now we're going to be talking all about Pete's journey in 1983 on a 1935 yacht sailing from the UK to the South Pacific. Essentially this is probably one of the first people that have kind of left that rat race and escaped and took control of their whole life. So we're going to learn all about why did he go to the South Pacific? What was he doing there and what led him to Phuket? Now, before we get started, we are Fruiting Body Podcast, but we're doing Fruiting Body Mushrooms. Uh stuff like Lion's Mane, Reishi, Cordyceps. So you can check out links in the description uh if you're interested in all that fun stuff. If you're tired of me rambling, I have chapters below so you can navigate uh, this podcast m- podcast much more seamlessly. Do not forget to like, subscribe. I think we're pushing about 4,000 subs, something like that. Uh, helping us grow in the algorithm. But more importantly, if you can share this, if you're sharing this podcast, it's really gonna get us going. Um, okay, so without further ado, we're gonna get this started with Pete Atkinson. Okay, Pete, thanks a lot for joining. Very welcome. Nice yeah. to be here. Now, did I pronounce the last name correct? Pete A- 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 Atkinson. Yeah, oh, Okay. Atkinson. Sometimes I, I forget to double check with the guests and then I like I'll mess it up and I don't want to shoot it again. So we roll with it. <laughs> um, As we do in the Fruiting Body podcast, we want to learn about your journey. And as I explained at the beginning in the intro, you might be maybe the first to really escape that rat race. Now, obviously, there was no digital tech back then. So you're not, you weren't the first digital nomad. But let's go all the way back, 1983. You're purchasing a yacht. It's a 1935 yacht. Tell us about that story. How did that come together, and what kind of went into that decision?
1: Um, I've always had a sort of genetic defect in that I've been obsessed by fish and fishing since I was very, very young. And then when I was an early teenager, I wanted to be um, a a trawler man, and then I – as soon as Jacques Cousteau was on the telly, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau because I thought he had a pretty nice life, so, swanning around on a, a, a boat, filming underwater, diving, and exploring. So um, I I managed to get into Bangor University to, to, to study marine zoology.
0: Okay. that better? You can hear it. Hans, can you hear the levels okay? Okay. Um, and... Uh,
1: so, you know, I, st- I started um, a marine biology degree and I built a, a second underwater camera housing to take pictures underwater, as one does. And um, when I graduated, it was the first time in my life that education was interesting and um, I got a good degree. I got a job in the zoology department as a technician and on the strength of that I was able to buy a three-bedroom house in north wales five thousand three hundred pounds that was back in the day and it was a rubin. so i spent um, a few years renovating it with the help of my girlfriend at the time and when it sold i went looking for a boat now i had no sailing experience really i'd read lots of books long before youtube and the internet and um uh, i found the boat in Limington for £11,000 and one on the back of the book 35 foot, built in 1935 no refrigeration, leaked badly and uh, so I bought it and that became my home for the next 17 years and um, so that first year I fixed it up a bit and sailed to Ireland to find out if I could sail came back and worked on a dredging barge over the winter and then the following year I, I sailed to um, spain and portugal and my girlfriend had just finished her phd um at brunel university and she came out to portugal to to join me to sail across the atlantic so um we got to um well we, we made landfall in barbados and then sailed up the antilles to antigua where we got work on a uh, motor yacht for a year, and. Um, she had the good sense to fall in love with somebody taller, better looking, bigger boat, wealthier than me. So when I left Antigua, I sailed alone to Panama and then into the Pacific. And that was really the start of my adventure <clears throat> in 1985.
0: Uh, Just a quick shout out to Five Star Marine and Sean Stenning. Five Star Marine, they're our sponsor on this podcast. So they're just helping us with the production and allowing us to make this content on a week-to-week basis to give it back to you guys, telling you these stories about people living not just in Phuket, but in Thailand. Uh, If you want to go check them out, it's on Instagram at Five Star Marine Phuket. Uh, We'll also leave links in the description. A little bit about who they are. They are a VIP private char- uh, speedboat chartered tour on the island of Phuket. So they're taking you to places like Lipe, Krabi, Pangna Bay. Uh, you have complete control over your own trip, which most of other services are not authoring that up. Uh, sorry, offering that. So Hans will probably throw up a QR code. You can scan that as well, or links are in the, in the descriptions, go check them out. Let them know if we sent you there, it just helps us grow this podcast. So let's get back to the podcast. How did you make that decision? Of you're going down Panama. Now you went through the Panama Panama canal and what I'm just going to keep going that way.
1: Well, you, you can't really turn around and come back because the trade winds are blowing that way. So you're, you're committed, you know, once you go through the canal, And I wanted to go to French Polynesia and I wanted to go to the the reefs in the South Pacific and Tonga and places like that. And, but it was, it was quite a big step. I had no, um, I had a VHF radio by then, but when I crossed the Atlantic, I had no VHF radio, no life raft, no in-date flares, a plastic sextant that I bought for 20 quid at Beaulieu boat jumble. So, I and no insurance because when I set out to cross the Atlantic, um, I inquired about insurance and they said, well, you need three people on board, one with ocean navigation experience, and the premium will be this much, which was about a quarter of the value of the boat. So I thought, oh, well, that makes the decision really easy. I won't have insurance. And I never insured any boat in 23 years. And uh, I think if you're reasonably careful you can you know in a lifetime of no insurance you can mm. probably end out a end
0: up ahead but you so you had no formal training and you're sell, setting sail out to the south pacific from kind of south central america Um, Was this purely because you wanted to to explore the French Polynesian and and your your passion and love for fish as well? Or how did that all connect? Like, why French Polynesia? Well, I I guess at one stage, I I wanted to sail around the world. And that was the way to do it
1: in in those days. Um, But, of course, the allure of the South Pacific meant that I didn't get any further, really. Because it's paradise, or it was paradise when, when I was there. I was lucky enough to spend a year in French Polynesia that first visit. Um, so I spent a, a hurricane season there and a, a normal season and then sailed um, to the Cook Islands. And there I, um, I, I was on my own in Atutaki in the Cook Islands and I met a Canadian backpacker called Vicky and uh, I said, um, do you want to sail to New Zealand with me? And She said, yes, of course. And she stayed on the boat for eight years. Oh, no refrigeration, imagine. And, and a kerosene oven that she used to bake in. So she was, she was pretty tough and put up with a lot. And she did dive, but she didn't dive much. So most of my diving was alone. And the thing about Polynesia is the, the water is clear, usually, and the marine life is fabulous. And then from the Cook Islands, we went to um, Beveridge Reef, which is my favorite place in the Pacific. It's an oceanic reef, four miles long, two miles wide, very, very clear water, 60-meter visibility, lots of sharks. And if you feed them, they behave very well. So we'd we'd take down bits of fish in a plastic box, and uh, there'd be current coming across the reef, so you could jam some fish in the coral, and the smell corridor would be going that way, and the sun was up there. And you think, okay, well, the shot's going to come this way, and I want the picture to be like such and such. Of course, this was all on film, long before digital. So you shoot a picture, you have no idea whether it would be any good or the exposure was right until a month or two later, sometimes. So it was quite challenging. Mm. But um, you know, when I was uh, when I left England, I submitted. Um, images to a picture library uh, with the hope of making some money from stock photography and I started in 1986 I was writing articles for magazines and um, that became my living and eventually I was accepted by Getty Images and my income just went stratospheric for me because my costs were very low I had no tax to pay anywhere because I was living offshore and, um, you know, life was fine and dandy.
0: How would you handle like the business side of that? Meaning you're taking the pictures for Getty in the, in the middle of the French Polynesian and you need to get them to them. And how are they getting you the cash? What's the transaction process? Yeah.
1: it, It really depended then on my parents being alive, which they were at the time. So I would send transparencies to Getty. Um, and they would, keep the ones they wanted and send the ones they didn't want back to my father. And when I got paid, it would go into a a UK account, a Jersey account. Um, And that changed over the years. Of course, digital transformed everything. And uh, it made it much easier to deliver pictures um, and take lots of great pictures, but everybody else could also take lots of great pictures so the value of pictures went down and down and down until to, to virtually nothing mm. so last year i withdrew from getty and i have my own stock on my website now but so it's sort of the end of an era but I, I caught the the tail end of the the stock photo industry
0: well let's let's take a step back to the beginning of the journey you're leaving from Panama Canal and you're heading out to the French Polynesian. What was your preparation and process for this, this next leg? How long was that journey and where did you stop first? Um, well, it was
1: 34 days. And in Panama, I stocked up on, on food. So on a boat, you'd have tin food, dried food. Cabbage would last a month. Um, eggs would last a month if you've greased them or turned them to keep the shells moist on the inside potatoes would last a month onions would last a month so but you know i ate a lot of rice and sardines um a doctor friend of mine used to call it rice and gray sauce and i just learned recently that i could have rebranded it paella and uh, it would have tasted much better um and of course, at sea you fish with a you tow a lure, but everything you catch is a metre long. So you, with no refrigeration, you eat fish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for two days, and then you don't want to fish for another two weeks. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I managed to survive and stay reasonably healthy, and of course I self-medicated because you know if you're at sea and you damage yourself or you get some sort of infection then you need antibiotics and, you know, I,
0: I had sutures and staplers and things on board. Um, but were you facing any major problems, storms, where it, it caused issues?
1: Um, not on that trip, but
0: uh, I've had some,
1: in, in the Canaries with, with my girlfriend, we had 70 knot winds, but flat seas, and that was pretty scary because the, I had a wind generator on the boat for electricity and one of the struts holding it up broke in the storm and then the the um, blades of the wind generator hit hit the backstay and broke and then we had a wind generator with four four adjacent blades and two missing still going round and round trying to shake the whole boat apart um and that was interesting but yeah I had a very bad storm south of Rarotonga um had quite a lot of Bad weather, I mean the thing about sailing is that living on a boat in the tropics is paradise, and when it's nice it's really, really nice.
0: but when it's horrible, it's really horrible. Were you prepared for that like when a massive storm was coming through, you've done your research you you were able to hunker down um no, not really um all you can do
1: at sea is reduce sail, and quite often i I'd, I'd just lay um under bare poles, I even know sail. If the wind was just gale force, you could heave to where you, you adjust the sail. So the boat sort of sits and bobs over the waves. Um, But I had no weather information because I had no long range radio. And the, the thing about having weather information is that it doesn't really help you because the systems are moving at 25 knots and you're moving at five knots. So Unless it's a hurricane with a very small centre, you're not going to avoid it anyway. And, you, you know, I try not to be out in hurricane season in places where I would be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So generally offshore, you're pretty, pretty safe. And when I spent cyclone season in the tropics, then I would try and be in a place where there were mangroves and mangrove rivers where you could get in and tie, tie into it. And, uh, but I never had a very, a very severe... Um,
0: encounter with that. that. That first leg from Panama going to the French Polynesians, now on the way is Easter Island. Were you able to stop by? Have you ever been? No,
1: and it's not really on the way. I'm much, much, much further north than Easter okay. Island. But I did see the Galapagos as I went past. And in those days, uh, you couldn't get water there, and you could only stop for 72 hours. If you wanted to go to the other islands, you needed to have a guide on board. So you needed to provide accommodation and food. And my boat was pretty small. So that was, you know, for a zoologist to stop there for 72 hours, I thought it was a travesty
0: and <laughs> I, I kept on going. Now that's because of like park regulations. They're pushing you along or?
1: Yeah, I, it, it was difficult. And because there was no water, I only carried 35 gallons on the boat. Um, I didn't have
0: water to spare really. Did you ever get down to mm, risky levels or critical levels where uh, maybe you had to take certain measures to be sure things didn't go, you know, shit didn't hit the fan? Um,
1: I, don't, I don't recall. I mean, we got very low on water and food on one or two trips in the Pacific that were much slower than we anticipated. Um, but I don't think we ran, ran out of water. I mean... The first time we went to Beveridge Reef, we wanted to stay there as long as possible um, so that we, we stayed until the food and water was running very low, anticipating a certain length of time to get to Nookalofa in Tonga. Um, but of course, the weather didn't play ball, so it actually took longer and then we were really Pretty desperate, and the food stakes. By the time we were, got there,
0: were you using the stars to kind of navigate to get around? The stars and the sun and the moon. And how did you have material that you kind of prepared that could? Well, you have um, an almanac and um, tables,
1: and um, the almanac is a sort of yearly diary, and if you need accurate time, and you measure the elevation of the sun above the horizon. And that doesn't give you a position. It just gives you a position line on a chart, which you can draw with a pencil. And then you sail for four or five hours and you know roughly the direction you're sailing and how far you've gone. And then you do another side and you get another line, but it will cross the first line. So you move the first line the distance you've travelled in the direction you've, you you using parallel rulers. And where they, they cross then is is approximately your
0: position and w- were you sailing at night as well to follow yeah. the stars
1: I, w- I wouldn't follow the stars um but i could use them to navigate but you can only do that at dawn and dusk because you need to measure the angle between the star and the horizon so you have to be able to see the horizon um but you i'd sail 24 hours a day i had a self-steering gear that would steer the boat i almost never steered by hand um but it, it depended on the on the wind um it, if you were motoring it wouldn't work um and it, it was a sort of complicated mechanism but it
0: it worked very very well when you're staring out across the horizon and, and you're navigating in this sense um are you able to officially say flat earthers are both are complete full of shit or what are your thoughts on that well
1: a lot of people are full of shit for different reasons they just full of shit for that particular reason but they're not unique in believing nonsense. And it's it's hard to really believe that anybody that's not mentally defective could believe that the earth is flat because it's so easy
0: to disprove. Um, yeah, even, even that, it's, uh, it's a bit mind-blowing when they, they try to come out and uh, say the earth is flat. I, I personally, I don't get it. I mean, we've all been on an airplane. we see see the curvature of the earth but
1: you know that when you consider how many people are religious this is maybe more dangerous ground um it's in the human psyche to believe things that are convenient but not necessarily true and you know the flat earth is one example and
0: a belief in an external God is another, I, I would think. I mean, the flat earth theory was originated by the Catholic church. They didn't want people sailing out to sea and discovering, you know, new ideas, new adventures. So they said you'd fall off the edge of the earth.
1: Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that. But, uh, you'd think that they would be interested in just so they got more
0: people to convert and tithe. I mean, see, my theory is the religion at that time, uh, say the Catholic church, that, that, was, that was just their television. They didn't have, now today we have television that can program us. Well, we didn't have television back then. So everyone went to the church and that was your programming. And that's pretty much what, what I, and then I think that was probably dictated by the kings or the powers above. And they decided what information we had to program this week on Sunday. And that's kind of how that, that probably was the purpose of it. Yeah, maybe. being. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you're sailing around in the South Pacific. You're, you're doing this for plus 20 years. At which point, did you ever have a breakdown and say, you know what, maybe it's time to go back to civilization? Or was every day a gift? Um, both. Well, one of the great advantages I had was
1: that I wasn't qualified to do anything useful or interesting. You know, a degree in marine biology, the... The kind of jobs that I could have got were not particularly interesting for me. Diving and with sharks and whales and photographing that interested me. So the temptation to to sort of have a real life was was limited. But eventually, I I got sort of tired of having to move you know, every four months or every six months when the visa expired. I had to sail on somewhere else. And sometimes I'd sail back to French Polynesia from New Zealand, for example. Um, Yeah, so I I was sort of looking for a a base in the South Pacific where I I didn't have to keep moving. And I was in London um, at the Natural History Museum for a a photography competition. And I ran into a German guy who I knew and... um, he said, "Oh, yeah, I'm I'm living in Australia in Cairns. Um, I got a distinguished talent visa for Australia." And I thought, "Well, that's interesting. I've never heard of a distinguished talent visa." <laughs> and in those days, I was um, making reasonable money and winning competitions and and things like that. Um, so I thought, "Well, I'll have a go and see if I can." And uh, anyway, I applied for it in about two thousand and three was accepted in 2004 and sailed to Cairns and by then I had a, a bigger boat um, a 44 foot aluminium boat that I'd bought in New Zealand and that was great because it for the first time in my life I had dry office space on the um on the sea so the first thing I did I put an electric piano in the four feet so I could play the piano and <laughs> um So anyway, I got to Australia to Cairns and put the boat up for sale and uh, bought a house with a swimming pool, as one does, and tried to settle down, and that was confronting. First thing was I needed a mortgage to get the house, at least until the boat is sold. So I went to the bank and said, look, I'd like to get a mortgage for a house. And they said, yeah, no problem, just can we have your tax records from the past four years? tax what is this thing you talk of <laughs> and um i said i haven't paid tax anywhere for 23 years <laughs> to their credit they gave me a mortgage and i bought the house and then um so i sort of set up the, an office in the house and was doing underwater photography in, in cairns going out on the Liverpool dive boats and there was a nice environment because that we had some very good friends there um i say we i was on my own at that time and one day I got an email. He said, my dive instructor says you can teach me underwater photography. So I replied and said, look, if you're on Cairns, let's meet for a coffee. And then I Googled the name on the email, Darien Lim Suen Sub. And the only Darren I could find was a Swedish bloke. So thought, oh, a bit disappointing. Anyway, the next email said, oh, by the way, I'm in Sydney. I'm 24, Thai and female. And my eyes lit up because I was forty eight, never married, always looking for a cute girl who could dive, who's interested in photography. So we got on email and then the phone. By midweek we were on video video cam and I you know, she was a thousand miles away in Sydney. At the end of the week I proposed to her, having never met, and she said yes. And we'll have been married seventeen years this year. And um
0: <laughs> well, I guess she didn't make the the wrong decision, and now I'm assuming you're in, you're in Phuket living with her. Yeah, yeah. Now, how what was she doing in Australia at the time? She
1: she'd done a degree in uh, communication arts at Chulalongkorn University, and was doing a business uh, marketing diploma in Sydney. And um, so anyway, she moved up to Cairns. We got married three months later, and we stayed in Cairns until she got an Australian passport, which makes life that much easier when she travels um because as you know it's a nightmare Um, and the first year we were married um in fact before we were married we came to phuket and a friend of my sister's drove us around and we were looking sort of casually at property and we saw some houses in our price range that were 60 percent built so we thought well, let's buy one. And so we bought one in Pac Lot, where we still live. And um Darren's el- eldest brother is an architect. So he took one look at it, sixty percent built and said, Ah, get rid of this wall here, put windows here, get rid of this room and and transformed the house into a very lovely living space. It's probably too small for us now. Um, but yeah, uh, we love it. It's very quiet.
0: It's safe for the cats. Uh, and uh, yeah yeah so, when you're 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 making this decision to marry her quite quickly i'm assuming you have no concept or a connection of thai culture at this point at, at, at that level anyways how how did you adapt what were the challenges and i'm sure a lot of people in your position when marrying a thai girl maybe they're not fully aware of 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 the culture and, and what to maybe be prepared for it. or was it just smooth sailing It was pretty smooth sailing because she's very,
1: she's not very, very Thai. I mean, her ancestors are Chinese um, and she's very smart and highly educated. I remember, I think in the first week of conversation, she said, what's the difference between affect and effect? I said we're in Australia. You don't need to worry about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they barely know. They don't even know the answer over there. I lived in Australia for for a year at the Gold Coast. Did you like it? Um, I I, w- I I was so young, so I I didn't have like money to enjoy it. Probably the way I should have. Mm. I was uh, there for university, um, and I kind of was just in the bubble. So I was just surfing a lot. I didn't really get to go experience the rest of Australia. Mm it's i I, it, I i'm kind of conflicted i don't i don't know if i would go back again i think what i do remember was at that time was very expensive and i was i was about 18 or 19 and i just do remember like the cost of groceries at that age was like astronomical
1: yeah you'd be shocked now i mean i would be shocked now i haven't been back for a few years
0: but apparently it's got very very expensive yeah i'm and i'm certain on certain produce obviously certain times of years that this is what someone was explaining to me as well. Like, well, there's only so much you can grow here as well. Now, when did you guys make this decision to, to move to Phuket? And did you sail over here? No, I sold the boat.
1: um, You know, when I, when I got married, I sold the boat. I figured I can't afford a wife and a boat. Um, Actually I can't afford to eat it, but don't tell anybody. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the boat was out of the picture then um and you know as i said we came to phuket for a holiday well we came to bangkok so i could ask darren's father if i could marry um his daughter and he he said yes but i'm sure he was rubbing his hands with glee (laughs) but um so yeah we bought the house that first year
0: and we had to spend long enough in australia for to get permanent residency and things. So, so which, we, which year did you kind of arrive, like, settle down in Phuket? Probably 12,
1: 12 or 13 years yeah, ago. 2010, yeah,
0: 2010, yeah. Yeah, I think it was 2010. Um, yeah, basically when she got a passport, we came here permanently. Is she from Phuket or? It's from Bangkok. She's from Bangkok. Mm-hmm. So how did you guys both decide Phuket with, I mean, Thailand? There's a lot of options. Oh, well, we bought a house here. Okay, so that, that's the decision. <laughs> yeah. But even um, to make that decision, let's buy a house in Phuket. Why Phuket? um i suppose because of my job or you know because of my what i wanted
1: to do is work it was one of the more convenient places because there are lots of liverboards going to Simlands, and Simlins is okay diving and it's well connected to the rest of the world with the airport so um yeah it's hard to imagine another place in thailand that's as suitable
0: and we both like it here. we got great friends here. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. What's your connection with Tony? Now, Tony's been on the podcast, Tony Mishulayev, yeah. uh, Tones of Blue. Yeah. Um, I saw you were with him on, on Songkran. How do you know Tony? I'm, I'm just guessing probably from the same industry, the same world.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I haven't I, – I don't know him very well, actually. And I've only met him reasonably recently. But I've known his work for longer and he's the best underwater photographer in Phuket, I think. And so I was very keen to meet him and he's a super guy, as you know. And um we get along. Um but I I love his work. But you know, he's he's a real photographer. He's trained as a photographer, he's got a great vision, he the post processing he does
0: is beautiful. And uh, yeah, I'm a great admirer. What's the difference between a a real photographer and maybe someone that's trying to pick it up as a hobby? How do they transition to that next uh, professional level? It's a very good question. I think it's almost impossible now, but
1: uh, particularly in the underwater arena. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't advise anybody to do it, to try and make a living at it now because I think it's impossible. And writing is impossible now because... Can- Why? What do you mean impossible? Like- oh, because nobody pays anything for it, for pictures. You know, I, uh, I'd have Getty sales of less than a dollar. Um, you know, back in the day, I made quite a lot of money from Getty. Seemed to me a lot of money. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sales of stock pictures have, have gone down and keep going down. There are a few people who can make a living at it, and many of them run group tours, so they, um, you know, they they get a, a commission that way. But uh, I think it's, um, yeah, it's it's pretty much impossible. Wedding photographers that we know here, they make a a living, and they, yeah, they make a good living. I'd say the um,
0: the the underwater photographers like Tony, if they're not able to. You know make a business out of the the photos themselves are they transitioning now into um, classes seminars training programs um i don't know tony teaches freediving as you know
1: um so he's got a few strings of his bow and he, he's that good that people will commission him to shoot them um you know i nobody would uh commission me to shoot that <laughs> And my wife would say, well, your pictures are so 1970s. Mm. Um, but I, the, the, the problem with having this sort of genetic defect of passion for underwater photography is that it doesn't go away, and I still want to do it, even when the pictures are not as good as Tony's. Um, I was in the pool at Meridian yesterday, and, and it, it's an interesting case study because... I've seen 60 meter visibility in Meridian Hotel and it's, it's world-class, it's beautiful Uh, with blue sky, but you know, you've had, I've had to watch the weather and make an appointment on a blue sky day and have the luck that the visibility was very good, but you know, they've had a very high, very hectic high season. So the pool's not clear now and i had a model yesterday which is they're very difficult to get hold of and um so the pictures are not not useful i mean they're okay but they're not you know a a hotel needs the best pictures possible
0: so when you're photography when you're doing your own photography and most of it is more marine life is there ever a point in your career where you capture something that's like the the highlight of your career and then possibly you end up trying to chase that that level of of uh fulfillment again? Um I've been lucky. Um I was in in New Zealand um many
1: years ago, probably 15 years ago. And um I'd spent spent a lot of time in Fongray in the town basin, which had good access to bars and and uh, shops and the post office. And eventually I went out out the the river down to the sea and up to Tuticaca, And on the way, I saw a whale shark feeding quite close to the coast. And I had two girls on board. And the next day, we went out to look for whale sharks. We didn't find any until we were almost home. And um, there were two feeding on plankton late afternoon. I jumped in the water and I took some pictures on film. Now, there was no light, but I was able to measure the light so I got the lab to push the film two stops, and then I got my friend Toby to scan one of the pictures and boost the exposure more. And that ran on page two of the National Daily and the front page of the local. It was the first picture of a whale shark ever shot underwater in New Zealand. And there was just complete fluke. You know, My buddy had been out every day to the poor nights, hadn't seen any whale sharks. Um, and, then, you know, they're not common. How yeah. quick are they moving? Uh, about two and a half knots. Um, so just a bit quicker than you can swim when they're not trying. You know, they're, when they're just toodling around, they're actually going pretty quick when it comes to... Um,
0: but because they were feeding, they would come round and round again in the, in the Yeah, they, they have this in Philippine in a place called, I think, Oslo. Oslo, But yeah, this I mean, is more... Do, do you condone that or are you against what they're doing I think there? it's fantastic. I think it's great um
1: you know as you know the philippines is desperately poor and that puts millions and millions of dollars into an economy that's poverty ridden but i what i marvel about the oslob thing i mean it's quite well controlled sure it affects their behavior but so does fishing affect fishes behavior um he said you can imagine that once years ago there was an old guy in a canoe out there fishing and a whale shark came by and he had some dried shrimp or something in the canoe that he could throw out to the whale shark and feed the whale shark and the whale shark remembered so that the next day he could do the same thing and then a light bulb must have gone on in this guy's head that there's a business here I can bring tourists and now it's huge and um yeah I, I thought it I'm a great fan of creating ambassadors for the marine environment. And that's one of them. And feeding sharks is another. And, um, you know, it's not something that's done here, but you could feed the black tip reef sharks at Maya Bay perfectly safely. Well, until somebody got bitten,
0: of course. But at Oslo, it's kind of more of a, like an amusement park now. Your people line up, hundreds yeah, hundreds, hundreds of people, yeah. and the these whale sharks just swim in a circle eating so you can swim with them. It, do, yeah. Is that not in... Are they not being kind of essentially caged? Well, no, because when the feeding stops and it's only for a limited time, they
1: swim away and then they come back the next day. But they don't have to come back, mm. but they like to because it's free food. Um, I don't... It, it does... A, um affect their migration habits. I don't have a big problem with it. You know, I have a much bigger problem with poverty in the Philippines. And you we can discuss the one of the causes of that poverty that we touched on earlier. Um definitely but, the government, <laughs> but hey,
0: maybe I gotta go to the Philippines sometime. So yeah. um yeah. Would you compare like this type of, uh, marine or wildlife tourism? Is it comparable to people riding elephants or is this two different situations?
1: Um, it, it affects
0: people in the
1: same way. People get very aggravated about riding elephants. Um, I don't know enough about elephants. Only I know they're rather big. And rather bigger than horses, and people ride horses all the time, and nobody seems to get upset about that. And I'm not quite sure whether it's just the way that um elephants are trained to be um you know to behave well amongst people. I, I don't know, but I always think it it always seems to me a little odd that um people are worried about other people riding elephants and yet you've got a 200 squid boats out here every night and other boats, you know, decimating reefs every day. And that's okay.
0: Yeah. On that point, I heard a a quote from your side that the Marine life in Phuket specifically, it doesn't exist at that level that probably it used to because, well, we ate everything. Yeah. Is there any way to control that or what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. Um, One of the greatest ambassadors for marine reserves, I think, is the Poor Knights Marine Reserve in New Zealand, which has been a no-take zone for over 25 years. And it's, uh, I want to say, 14 miles offshore. It's a group of islands. And it's temperate water, but you get big shoals of big fish. And it's absolutely mind-blowing. And I think it's probably the best example in the world. Now, to make... uh, Say the two-mile limit around Phuket, a no-take zone, for twenty-five years, would take some money to pay off the fishermen, basically to buy out their ability to to fish. But the value of a recovered marine ecosystem around Phuket would be immense. Now, of course, it's no good doing that if you've got construction runoff going into the sea and and. Clong at Kamala emptying into the sea and and other things affecting the marine environment. But the potential is there for, um, you know, a a much better situation. Um, But like most things in Thailand, very difficult to actually create those spaces and make it work because of
0: the way business is done here. Do you think a lot of, let's say, is it a lost cause? Have we gone past the point of no no return, especially when we're, we're having that discussion about marine life and like microplastics? Is there anything that we can do or is, is it, we're just gone too far?
1: Um, Yeah, I think there are things you can do, but the, the problem is that it's very difficult to do anything about them in democracies because people don't like to vote against their own interests. Uh, But, you know, here you had the advantage that, you know, you had a military dictatorship for a while. You could say to manufacturers, okay, you can package things in plastic. It needs to be this number of plastics. The the, the top needs to be the same plastic as the bottle so it can be recycled together. Um, We're going to put a deposit of one baht or two baht on every bottle or every container. Um, And because of the number of poor people here, there would be no you know plastic bottles on the beach because they all have value um but you have to impose that on manufacturers because it's much cheaper for them to to um you know just do whatever's cheapest whatever's most profitable mm-hmm. but it's possible to do and you know a country like Germany has very good recycling um standards um yeah there I think there's a, a, a lot you can do. But, I mean, a lot of people think that um, closing Maya Bay is good that because the coral recovers. It's nonsense. Maya Bay, um, I mean, it does, it does recover, that's sure, but it's completely pointless. You've got this cash cow of Maya Bay that, like the Oslob um, whale sharks, can generate huge amounts of money that can be used – to basically create marine parks elsewhere by paying off the fishermen um you know with a, probably a tenth of the income from pp you could close off Puket for 25 years mm. to fishing because that you know the fishing effort at the moment or the the catch is worth so little at the moment that to to pay off all the fishermen plus interest for 25 years um while they're alive um wouldn't be particularly onerous i would have thought um i don't think there's anything you can do about it. the squid boats offshore and squid reproduce very quickly i'm not sure that's much of a problem but obviously all the things that would have eaten those squid like sharks
0: don't exist because the the pressure on the
1: squid fishery
0: this point of view and having these discussions maybe amongst your friends um, are you taking the extreme point of view because you're gonna Probably. get you're gonna get a lot of ar- arguments back? Have you had that conversation? What are people playing yeah. devil's advocate on your own conversation? What would they respond to you? Well, they, they would say, "Look, my bay's recovered. The sharks of the sharks are here again, and that's wonderful." And
1: blah blah blah. Um, the sharks will be there all the time if you fed them. Um, I'm sure the Black tip reef sharks do come back when, when it's left alone because if when when I've been at atolls in the Pacific where there are no people, you have black tip reef sharks every evening in the shallows this long, swimming around, um, with their dorsal fins sticking out of the water. Um but, you know, compared with the revenue that can be generated by the fact that people want to go to Maya Bay, um, I think ecologically it's irrelevant, I yeah. think. And um But, uh, you know, I'm a great fan of setting aside other areas. But the thing is, like the Similans, it's closed half the year. Well, who has access when it's closed? And there's no oversight by dive boats. Fishermen. Um, I'm not suggesting that fishermen ever fish in in the the marine reserve when there's nobody looking. But it's possible. Um, You know, it may be just from a safety point of view that they don't want boats out there, um, marginal boats getting sunk in the, in the wet season out there, which is fair enough.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, the, the, the water gets quite rough after May and June out there. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's a lease on the island. So once you're out there, you're sheltered out of this, this entire area of Southern Thailand um, and going around in, in, uh, being involved in taking your, and doing your photography. Is there any like hidden gems that maybe you shouldn't be telling on this podcast that to keep people away from or something you could share? Um, I don't know of any, um,
1: I, 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 st- I sort of stopped diving about three years ago when I had some heart operations. Um, and I've been diving since to Similans and Richelieu, for example, is very rich, but I didn't see a single shark there. And um, I'm not sure why. Um, yeah, I I don't need much to enjoy myself. I, you know, I don't need anything particularly special. Um, I like Cobon, the Southern Bay and Cobon. Um, but you know, I'm a great fan of clear water. I can if the water's
0: clear, I don't care if there's nothing in it. <laughs> yeah, I saw a leopard shark at Risha though. That area, yeah, maybe five, six years ago. Um, just to kind of jump back to a bit where we were. One check, I want to check the time so YouTube doesn't kill us. What time? How long are we? Fifty-two. Okay, perfect time. Um, going back to your time in the French Polynesian, there's probably so many um, uncharted islands, even um, these islands where people are. There's probably no inhabitants either. When you're meeting, maybe. These more secluded islands are were you meeting tribes out there? What were these people like? What were they doing well in French Polynesia they're very
1: sophisticated'cause I have a, a you know they were colonized by the French who was sophisticated civilized people so um you know they they knew what was going on in the world they were uh, um affluent very often from farming pearls or um so really you weren't in particularly in French Polynesia you weren't meeting. Uh, people who are less developed, on the contrary, they're generally more developed than the, the Um But, you know, Vanuatu is virtually Stone Age in places. So the, there's quite a big difference, even though um, Vanuatu was a condominium of fr-
0: France and Britain way back when. But would you interact with the locals on the island or you yeah, kept your distance? Yeah.
1: Oh, no, no, you'd, you'd always have to interact. And in, in Fiji, you'd have to go to the the village chief with an offering of kava um, right at the beginning of your your stay and offer it's what's called a sevu sevu and drink kava which is fairly disgusting um
0: yeah so yeah there was always interaction with with were were you uh, trading with them you would have some you'd be bringing stuff from other local islands and
1: um not so much but the yachty when when we were in the marquesas we made great friends who are friends still 30 years later, um, we would trade a lot because you get to the Marquesas and you couldn't buy very much in the Marquesas. So um, one friend had tutu bullets because he had a gun on board and the locals loved tutu bullets for hunting pigs. So they would trade and then they had little perfume testers and they would trade those for coconuts or fish or lobsters and the yachties would trade things that they didn't need for things that they did need. And uh, that became quite a thing because, you know, you wouldn't always have a, a three quarter inch Whitworth nut in stainless steel, but one of the
0: odds would. And you just get on the radio and and uh, ask. And w- and were was, these waters, I heard some stories about a guy, Hugh, you know, are you familiar with Hugo? I've, I've met him once. Okay. Uh, he was telling us stories like it can get hostile out at sea. Did you ever have to carry a gun to protect yourself, or was no. it quite, uh, you didn't have to lock the doors at night?
1: No, no, not at night. Um, the, the The worst thing would be in port, some ports. You had to uh, lift the dinghy out of the water on a on a halyard so that it was hard to steal. And quite often, if you went to shore, you'd have a, a stainless steel painter and you'd lock the the dinghy to the pier. Um, and I did have dinghy stolen, two, two actually, one in Suva,
0: but I got it back, and another one in New Caledonia, which I didn't get back. How, how did you get it back? You went around trying to ask I, I right went people? looking for it, yeah. Okay.
1: And every mangrove inlet around Suva Harbor, and I eventually found it. And
0: eventually got the engine back as well. They stole your engine as well. Uh, yeah, the, the engine was on the dinghy. Did you did you find it, or did you actually find the person? Did you have to confront them? No, I didn't. Um, I went to the the police in Lamy Town, which was the local,
1: and I offered them the carver, <laughs> um, what used to be called a bribe, <laughs> um, and they they um, I
0: told them I'd found the dinghy and I stole it back basically, and I told them where it was, and they they eventually. Cool, so the, the thieves never confronted you. They kind of left it alone yeah.
1: anyway.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Like while Hugo was saying a lot of these islands, once you get out in the French Polynesians, it's basically incest and apples because they're kind of just interbreeding with each other anyways. Yeah, they didn't grow apples. So... No, that's anyway. I guess that, that's <laughs> yeah. his, his way of putting it. Did, did yeah. you notice that Is, it could be quite incest out there? Or I mean, I can't I, I... imagine the genetic div- diversity for them to interbreed. Um, I, I don't think it's a problem because there's yachts coming through all the time with
1: good looking guys on and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, no. le- and leaving children. So yeah, you saw yeah. a lot of, uh, yeah. leaving jeans behind. Yeah, there you go. Um, I, I, I never had that impression. Um, really, I mean, uh, um,
0: yeah, I, I don't think that was really yeah. an issue, okay. but, um, maybe. And for, for yourself, well, well, we haven't jumped around too much, but back coming to Phuket, what's next for you? You're here. You're this is probably where you're going to spend the rest of your life. I'm assuming you got your house over in Paclock. Yeah. Do you have anything coming up on the horizon? You brought your book here. Are you planning to write more articles, more books? What's your future plans? That's a good question. Um, keep my
1: wife happy. I think is my main task in life. Um, I'm very content here and, um, you know, I photograph swimming pools for fun because it's cheaper than going diving in the sea um, and I enjoy it. I, I, I like the technical challenges of underwater photography still and I hope to do, do one or two trips with Tony and and steal all his great ideas. Mm. But he's very good with people. I mean, one of the problems I have if I, I need to shoot with a model underwater, I find it very, very difficult to find... You know young women that can free dive and that look good underwater that have free time you know because um yeah most people are, are, are productive and they have a job and yeah and generally generally it, it's a blue sky day and i know the day before and i need to phone somebody to say look are you free for two hours tomorrow we go and shoot in this pool and do this and but so that that's that's a problem but um yeah i i'm quite happy you know we have two cats and they uh, occupy a lot of my time um and uh yeah so i i don't because the quality of life that we have here is so high i just feel very grateful to be able to live here and support my wife in things that she does and and um yeah
0: well i think that's the best part about living in phuket you can be content it's a um whether you want to live, you know, high-end luxury or live a live a simple life, you th- those options are available. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Let's talk quick. Uh, so, I, I want to let everyone know about. You brought your book with you here. Now, can people still purchase this, like through the no. website? I saw all the co- you said you, it, the it, last two hundred copies were out of Bangkok and completely. Yeah, yeah.
1: I I had two hundred um, copies printed, which I sold, and oh, um,
0: that. Show but that.
1: The, the the you know. Yeah. The, they weigh two kilograms. So
0: yeah. Um, if people would, would you make this available again? It, it,
1: no. Well, I, yeah. I don't think so. If a publisher came to me, mm. the thing is that this was a digital print um, on an indigo press, so they're actually quite expensive to. And the first ones I had, I think I had a fifty or a hundred done, and so the cost per copy was just a just over a thousand. Mm. And. Um, so it's sort of worthwhile doing, but um, because I had smaller and smaller print runs and the cost went up, it became not worthwhile to do. I mean, if somebody wanted 100 copies, I I, I could do it in a heartbeat. Um, but the thing is, the PDF is available free on my website as a download. Um, I, I used to uh, charge $5 for it, but then um, PayPal became unusable for people, mm. non-citizens in Thailand, so... It's um, available free, and it it's, it might inspire you to. Um, well, hopefully, it would inspire young people to to realise that there are other paths, uh, not not this one particularly, because I don't think you can make a living doing it anymore. But um, you know, AI has changed the world, and it will change so many professions, and young people need to think about. The possibilities are open, opening up now for a life less traveled,
0: as it were. Well, everyone's kind of becoming smaller and smaller. Stay in your house and don't go too far. This is kind of the uh, what's on the agenda, let's say. Um, how if people want to reach out to you, uh, we we I saw you, they, you have your website. Um, is there anything like specific that if people are going to reach out to you, that maybe you're offering? Um, or if they just want to say hi. Uh, anybody, anybody, particularly underwater
1: models. Um, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Happy to hear from anybody. You know, I've got plenty of spare time. I can reply to people's emails, but, um, yeah, you, just Pete com is my website. And, um, you can message me through there. Um, and,
0: uh go from there awesome so if you're any underwater models looking to get in touch with pete and (laughs) maybe do a photo shoot peteatkinson.com pretty easy um that's probably the best way to get a hold of you and then from there there's uh your your email is provided as well
1: yeah i mean you can probably find me on on facebook there's a picture of a guy underwater ascending
0: through a bubble ring and that's that's
1: me Send me a
0: friend request. All right. Well, that we hit the probably one hour plus mark. That wraps up another episode of the Fruiting Body Podcast. So hope you enjoyed. Let us know in the comments what you thought. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And uh, if you have any questions for Pete, you can hit him up at peteattkinson.com. Okay. Thanks a lot. We're out.